Hello, Sebastian here, and welcome to another episode of Social Medicine On Air. Ahead of our conversation with Dr. Claudio Schuftan, we thought best to provide our listeners with a brief summary of Salvador Allende and the Chilean military coup in 1973. This is by no means a comprehensive analysis or a synthesis of this political leader and his work. We merely want to provide some pointers, as Dr. Schuftan's personal trajectory overlaps this very important period in Latin American history. Salvador Allende was a physician and pathologist born in the early 20th century in Santiago de Chile, graduating as a medical doctor in, in the 1930s from the public university Universidad de Chile. Despite coming from a relatively wealthy family, Allende grew up with a strong influence from the anarchist movement in the country that would define his political stance and affiliation. Early on in his medical career, Allende got involved in political and social activism, mainly articulated with leftist student movements. He then participated in the foundation of the Chilean Socialist Party in Valparaíso in 1933 and joined the leftist political coalition Frente Popular, Popular or Popular Front, through which in the late 1930s became a deputive representative in the Chilean Congress. This period positioned Allende for a very prolific, prolific political life and boosted his profile among the masses and elites. After supporting the successful presidential campaign of Popular Front's candidate Pedro Aguirre Cerda, Allende was elected health minister of the leftist government uh, between 1939 and 1942. During this time, he published his seminal book, La Realidad Medico-Social Chilena, in 1939, The Medico-Social Reality in Chile. The book is still regarded a reference in the Latin American social medicine literature to this day, and certainly represents an important moment in the link between leftist politics and social medicine that is so characteristic of the Latin American movement in the 60s and 70s. As a fun fact, the book was actually prohibited and sealed away from North American readers by the CIA and Department of Defense during the Cold War. That is to say, until some years ago when Professor Howard Winsky found the only copy of the book in the CIA-released archives at the Stanford University Library. The source of agenda social medicine is also contested. Some authors affirm that it was partially established through Max Westenhofer, a German pathologist and professor who taught medical courses at the Universidad de Chile roughly at the same time that Agenda was undergoing his studies. Westenhofer was himself a pupil of Rudolf Virchow, the great social medicine pioneer of the German and European social hygienist movement in the mid-19th century. So the idea goes that Westenhofer took much of Virchow's thinking across the Atlantic and established a social medicine stronghold in Chile from which Allende nurtured. However, other scholars have investigated the link further asserting that Westenhofer dedicated his influence in Chile on his area of expertise, pathology, nothing associated with social medicine or virtuous political thinking. Moreover, his time at Chile was invested in institutions that Allende did not encounter, not coincided with. Even if the fields of medicine overlap, meaning pathology, 
Westenhofer did not teach or create links with Allende in his formative years or thereafter. The tension still carries on. From the 1940s onwards, Allende became a very important figure in Chile's politics, being elected president of the Socialist Party multiple times, becoming senator at different moments of the politics, and running for president four times with multiple coalitions aggregating socialist and communist fronts in the country. He traveled multiple times to the USSR and the Popular Republic of China, presiding Chilean delegations for diplomatic purposes and was politically close to Fidel Castro and the Cuban Revolution. Eventually, Allende became Chile's president in 1970 via the coalition Unidad Popular, or Popular Unity, integrated by the Socialist and Communist Party, the Social Democrats, and various others. Multiple secret intelligence documents from the US and abroad affirm that Agenda received funding for the campaign from both Cuba and the Soviet Union. Given the communist threat that Agenda represented in Latin America and at the height of the, uh, of the Cold War era in the US foreign policy, President Richard Nixon and the CIA elaborated multiple plans to obstruct the presidential results and the possession all of which failed. Towards the 1973 military coup, the political environment in Chile changed, with both institutional crisis and multiple ideological dissent building up at the local level. Notes of violence began emerging across the country, many of which revolved around the tension between capitalist values that were sponsored by the elites and socialist utopia envisioned by popular masses in domains like education, justice and healthcare. Certain groups among the military ranks, traditionally conservative and pro-capitalist, attempted to plot and execute a coup multiple times, failing in the process. However, in September 11, 1973, most of the higher commands of the military, of the military allied with the financial and military support of the CIA to realize a military coup that trumped agenda's leadership and presidential power. Heading the coup was military commander Augusto Pinochet, now convicted for multiple crimes against humanity and who inaugurated the most deadly persecution of leftist leaders in the country's history, known as Caravana de la Muerte, the Death Caravan. The support the coup obtained from CIA and other US departments is often linked to the broader wave of right-wing military dictatorships across Latin America that the US foreign policy supported in countries like Argentina, Bolivia, Paraguay, and Brazil. This is otherwise known as Operación Condor. As for Allende, he died that day, though the causes are still quite controversial. It is seen as either an act of suicide, which is the official information that we have, or a murder. Welcome to Social Medicine On Air, a podcast where we explore the vibrant world of social medicine. We learn through conversations with healthcare practitioners, researchers, and activists who are working to create a more just and healthy world. Hey, hey, happy to be here. Welcome everyone to Social Medicine On Air. Uh, I am Sebastian Fonseca, um, postdoc at the Center for Medical History at the University of Zurich. So a very warm welcome to everyone. 
Oh yeah, super excited to be here. And today we are we have a really exciting guest. Uh, we're going to be talking about some really interesting ideas ranging from what is global health to who are the corporate players in global health to what is the role or not role of economists and helping us to make global health decisions. Uh, what kinds of things need to happen from a human rights perspective to make sure that we can take care of people across and through boundaries. Uh, lots of amazing stuff today. And our, our guest is uh, uh, Dr. Claudio Shifchan. Good morning. Hey. Good evening for me. I'm oh, yeah. talking to you from Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam, where I have been living for 25 years. I am originally from Chile. I'm a pediatrician by training, but in the last 25 years, been pretty much working on, in public health and human rights issues. And uh, basically, left. I studied medicine in Chile, left uh, my country after the military coup, went to the U.S., worked uh, as a academic in U.S. medical schools and schools of public health, and did quite a bit of work in Africa, uh, crowning with seven years of work in Kenya, in Nairobi, working the first three years in the Ministry of Health, in the planning department of the ministry. And then the next four years, I yielded to my wife's profession, because in our marriage, we have done that. And I became a consultant, a, a mercenary, doing consulting in Africa and have done work in over 25 countries in Africa. Overall, I have, in my consulting work, probably been working in over 50 countries all over the world, basically in, on global health issues, uh, lots of work with refugee health and uh, a lot of maternal child health and nutrition, which is basically what I do most, nutrition and right to food issues. And you're also one of the co-founders of the People's Health Movement, right? That is correct. <laughs> we were eight dreamers in the late 90s. And in 2000, we called for the People's Health Assembly in Bangladesh, which was attended by representatives of 72 countries. It was very successful. It was a time and when Health for All by the year 2000, remember that? That was a promise somewhere in the 70s. Mm -hmm. And it never came true. And we had the reasons why it had not come true. So that's what we thought that we needed to get together. And what had been planned to be an assembly ended up by consensus uh, of everybody who came, 1,500 people, deciding that we had to create a movement. And that's how, how everything started. Ooh. A lot of content right there. Very rich. Thank you, Claudio, uh, for that amazing introduction. Raga. Yeah. Um, yeah. So maybe, maybe to just like, I'll, I'll start, we'll start really kind of vague and, and kind of work our way in. Um, what, what, what is global health? What does that term mean um, today in 2021? Um, how is that term like actualized? How is that term taught? How is it, how is it conceived of? And, and who are some of the important people involved in what the term global health really means in, in terms of how it's quote unquote operationalized uh, to use some sort of neoliberal vocabulary? Sure. Uh, when I was uh, teaching in universities in the United States, uh, School of Public Health, the discipline of international health was created as a course, which I helped to teach. So international health then over the years has become global health. And you have to be very clear that international health started in the countries in the north. And it started in relation to communicable diseases. It was the understanding globally that 
communicable diseases that sprang up in the south could eventually make it to the north. And therefore, you needed to have specialists in public health who understood the international connotations of public health. So that was originally the idea of starting training public health specialists in international health, who then became, began traveling around the world, learning more. And the idea was that this eventually turned into what we call now global health, with no clear limit on when this transition happened. It was just sort of renamed. But basically, the idea was that the rich countries had the idea that all the evils came from the South. And that is a very colonial kind of a concept. That we are the rich people, we are the clean people, we wash our hands and we eat clean food, and all these people over there have very bad habits and therefore they get all these terrible diseases. And these terrible diseases can eventually get to our shores and we are in trouble. So this is basically the history of, of global health. Uh, it includes mostly issues that exclude the social determination of health. Unfortunately, global health has become technocratized and the issues of the social determination and the socioeconomic and political causes of preventable ill health, preventable malnutrition and preventable deaths has been getting short shrift. It's there, but it's not as prominent as it should be. And I don't need to tell our listeners, they just have to look at COVID. Mm. Who's giving a damn about poverty and the socioeconomic problems that are related to this pandemic? So this gives you an idea how global health has, in a way, also failed. So it's very interesting that you... Um bring up a distinction between international and global health. Um, some of the authors that I've encountered uh, trying to distinguish between the two talk a lot about the governance underlying global health and international health. Whereas international health, you have more of a state-focused um, approach to health. Global health tend to have other actors that are also intervening, other actors that are not necessarily the U.S. government, the U.K. government or any of the other governments across the world. Uh, I guess my question to you, um, Claudio, is wh who are these new big players in global health? How should we think about global health governance um, and how they interact, um, you know, the role of the WHO, for instance, or uh, UNICEF or any of the other UN organizations, or even outside of it, the People's Health Movement or any other non-governmental organizations out there, um, Medicine Sans Frontiers or any of these other actors. How, how do they play out? How do they um, manage and operationalize um, global health as well? When we talk about global health, we cannot not speak about global health governance. So you have a very important point there to make. Global health governance is the key to why things are going more on the technocratic side. And I'll explain why. Basically, it has to do with, to begin with, with the corporate capture of United Nations agencies. 
And as many of our listeners probably know, 80% of the budget of WHO, for instance, comes from private sources. Only 20% are represented by the cotizations that countries do according to their population size and their economic power. Mm. So people say, but well, that's okay. They don't make the decisions because they are only providing the funding. But the problem is the following. If the Bill and Gates Foundation puts money on a project A, then WHO, without necessarily having in their boardroom decided that that was a priority, have to get organized to make use of that money that has been given by either a country, usually the rich country, or by a philanthrocapitalist association or philanthrocapitalist foundation, which has very specific interest. And Bill and Melinda Gates mm-hmm. is almost as a powerful donor as the United States as a country is to the Mm. WHO. So the governance then becomes distorted. Mm. You accuse them and they say, we don't sit at the table where the decisions are making. It's the member states who are there. But when the money is available for A, B, and C, that's what wiggles the tail of the dog. And that's how eventually the United Nations are being eroded from their mandate, constitutional mandate to serve the people. FAO is no different. FAO also has big corporate donors that are influencing the decisions. On top of that, I'm very much involved in the Committee for Food Security of FAO, which Mm -hmm. was created like 10, 12 years ago, and it was the only United Nations entity that allowed public interest, civil society, and social movements to have a voice and participate with the member states in some of the discussions that the organization was taking. It started all very well, and we were able to speak out. When the final decisions come, still it is only the member states who vote. Mm. And when the member states vote, it is invariably the European Union, the United States, Canada, Australia, who call the shots, and then they begin changing the texts of the resolutions by adding what is called square brackets and round brackets. Mm -hmm. Since they want to advance and not get stuck in one paragraph for three days, they decide, let's put it in brackets, we go on, and then we get back to resolve this issue in bracket. And then when the time comes that they have gone through the whole text and the text is full of these brackets, what happens is that they have these humongous meetings that all the press reports on. They were there overnight until four o'clock in the morning because all these resolutions have to be approved in consensus. Mm-hmm. And what happens before four o'clock in the morning is horse trading. I'll give you this paragraph, I'll give you this square bracket, you give me the other one, and at the end we end up with a watered-down resolution, which invariably public interest civil societies are very unhappy of. We have seen that all the time in the press. Mm. The UN decided this, the civil society has a counter I mean, a document, an open letter in which they say, we are very unhappy with that. And that's it. That's the situation we live in, global governance. Not Mm. only in health. Nutrition is the same, and in many other aspects as well. 
So it, it, this is crazy. It's super interesting. This idea of the round brackets and, and square brackets is also really fascinating uh, about how people's bodies, ideas are being sort of encapsulated in these almost pri- like it sounds almost like prison cells, you know, or like some sort of form of control where um, these sort of member states that have power on these committees are able to make gigantic decisions on behalf of people. Well, I just want to clarify a couple of things for myself and for listeners. So civil society, by that term, you mean like com- people living in a particular country, right? That's what that term means. <laughs> That's very important that you mentioned that. Uh, the United Nations does not speak about civil society. They speak about non-state actors. And what that does, it puts us in the same shoes as the private sector, because the private sector is also non-state actors. And by definition, the non-state actors from the private sector have the same rights as we have to participate in these discussions. Mm. So we have been insisting for decades that this is not the way to go. There is a private sector and it's the public interest civil society organizations. Yes, this represents organizations mostly in the South, but there are very progressive organizations also in Europe or in the United States that are as public interest as the ones in the South. So this is a very clear differentiation that needs to be done. And yes, we have had clashes. Now, the other way that global governance has been managed by the rich countries is by having this non-binding voluntary guidelines. And one that most of our listeners will be familiar with is the one about non-breast milk substitute. As you very well know, there is a voluntary guidelines that the Nestles and the Danones and the Dutch ladies and all these milk companies have signed to, that they will not promote formula for babies so that that erodes breastfeeding. Well, these countries Mm -hmm. continue to violate because it's a voluntary guideline. Now, for the first time in history, public interest civil society about two months ago walked out on the Committee on Food Security on voluntary guidelines on food systems because after four years of negotiations, we were not listened to. We said that there are some red lines that we will not cross. The red lines were crossed. We moved out. The document was approved without the civil society rubber stamp. And that is important for us. What were were some of those guidelines that you guys felt strongly about? It has to do with what are sustainable diets, and it has to do what is happening with agricultural mechanization and and, and, and agricultural, uh, industrial agriculture versus agroecology. Agroecology is something that we are pushing, saying most of the food in this world is produced by small producers. Big farms have very heavy inputs of fertilizers, of, I mean, diesel and herbicides and pesticides and the whole thing, and it's unsustainable and it's eroding our soil and etc. So this was at the basis of what we were Mm -hmm. fighting. And 
They won because the rich countries represented in the voting defend their transnational corporations that have interest in the seeds, in the in the agro in agrochemical industry, etc. So we lose all the time. So the same here is happening in health with with the with big big pharma. Hmm. The rich countries are defending their transnational pharmaceutical houses. It's it's fascinating uh, to hear this because, um, first off, it gives the idea that governance follows the money, which is nothing new in our market um, economies. Um, and then on top of that, if you equate the non uh, market actors like civil society organizations to private actors, you start off from a, a very asymmetric baseline. Uh, civil society organizations, of course, uh, do not profit or don't have uh, the same amount of economic strength, financial strength as the private actors. So already from the start, it is as though the uh, playing field is uneven. And so in, in my head, the most obvious question is then what, what is the role then of civil society organizations? What can we do so that the corporate interests don't take over um, all of these decisions uh, regarding health or nutrition governance in, in your experience? What, what are your thoughts about that? Being a member of a civil society organization, I can tell you that fundraising has become a nightmare for us. Of course. Because the money comes... If it's not from church organizations that are much more open, religious organizations, it comes from, from bilateral donors, I mean, from countries, from the European Union or from USAID or from Canadian CEDA or from, I mean, you name it. Those monies have been dried out for us because they think we are troublemakers. So that's the main problem. They have the money and money talks, as you very, very well say. Mm -hmm. Now, what can we do about it? Not very much. The only way is to create conscience and mobilize, and here we go into human rights issues. Mm. We have to get more claim holders to claim their right. And the story is like this. The human rights framework speaks about two types of actors, claim holders and duty bearers. Claim holders are the group of people whose rights have been violated or are being violated. They have a claim to redress of what is happening. The duty bearers are the ones who are decision makers who have the power to change this situation around. Now, why do the claim holders have eventually the power to get things done? Because the vast majority of countries in the world have ratified United Nations human rights covenants. Mm -hmm. And you have all sorts of economic, social, and cultural rights, women's, CEDO, the, the Convention of the Rights of the Child. It's all there. And they signed it. So what position does that put claim holders on? We are not going to beg anymore. We are going to demand. It says, listen, you duty bearers, the state, mm. you signed this thing. We didn't tell you to sign. You signed it. Between you and me, most of the countries signed without having any idea what they were signing. They signed because to keep up with the Joneses. Yeah. But now it's in international human rights law. So they cannot look away. And you can go to the court. You can sue them. 
for not complying with what they signed and ratified. So the claim holders gained a very significant and important power that they never had before. And that allows to politicize claim holders to make them understand that they are screwed, left and right and in the center as well. Mm. There's always a bit of a difficulty, um, and I can say this from my own background, just for listeners to know, I am coming from Latin America, and a lot of what uh, social movements in Latin America have been doing for the past 10, 15 years is holding on to these rights approach, the right approach particularly, um, to claim uh, things that normally they will be excluded for. So uh, an illustration of this, a very good example is in Brazil. Um, many of the listeners will be familiarized with uh, the Brazilian constitution after the dictatorship, which claim health as a human right. And based on that, many of the different uh, patients groups, particularly in Brazil, have been able to access medication or other, or other uh, healthcare services precisely because uh, the healthcare systems um, is linked to this constitutional mandate. So the Brazilian government has to guarantee access to that. However, um, what I want to ask you, Claudio, about that is that there are uh, various limits to that as well. Uh, I am sure, following with this example from Brazil, um, I'm sure you're familiarized with this idea that um, some of the rights that are being um, given to people in terms of resources and materials um, sometimes hinder the the products or the resources, the healthcare resources for other groups uh, because there's a limitation on the availability of these resources. The healthcare system cannot cover everything for everyone. Um, this idea of the progressive realization of rights. Um, I wonder how those limitations, um, how that interacts with what you just mentioned, you know, people trying to grab onto the right approach, but then at the same time having to encounter these obstacles. How, how to deal with that? First of all, Two seconds about Brazil. Whatever you said is true until Bolsonaro. (laughs) No, no, don't laugh. One of the biggest problems, one of the biggest programs that diminished significantly the poverty in Brazil was called Bolsa Familia. Mm -hmm. Bye-bye, Bolsa Familia with Bolsonaro. Mm -hmm. There were councils of health that we're making decisions of health at the regional and local levels. Those have become unfunded and have lost all the possibilities of power. So that's Brazil. Progressive realization of human rights. Absolutely. We cannot ask for all the human rights violations to be wiped out or eliminated from today to tomorrow. It is impossible. There are so many variables, economic, political, health, nutrition-wise, that we cannot. But what we are asking countries, and very few have done it, actually I don't know anyone that has done it, is to have a 10-year plan in which they say, we will eventually get over most of the human rights violation in the area of health, for instance. And that will be from now until whatever year. But then they have to break it down of where they want to be at the end of year one 
at the end of year two, at the end of year three, and at the end of etc. And then they have to put civil society organizations as watchdogs. So when the end of the year comes, they will have an honest assessment whether the progressive realization is progressing, is stagnant, or is going backwards. And we don't have that. Mm. This is the key thing that needs to be done for the progressive realization of human rights. Mm. And that has to empower public interest civil society to become the judges of the monitoring that this is going in the right direction. And that is what we as health professionals should be doing with our patients, with our claim holders, the ones that we work, and with the health workers that work with us. Because they are as as interested as us, other health workers, for these problems to be resolved. Do you know of a specific example of a group that has attempted to do that, to become a watchdog? I have written up extensively about it. I don't know. I mean, there are examples in which civil society has been very vocal about this, but in terms of the way I say that the government decides to have a 10-year progressive realization plan for health, nutrition, or whatever habitat, whatever it is, and then yearly breakdowns of how they will progress in percentages or whatever indicators they want to use. No, I don't know of any country that is doing it. Mm. Unfortunate. Yeah. This is, yeah, this is pretty fascinating. And yeah, I'm, so I'm going to try to summarize some of what we've talked about so far, just because I feel like I probably like most of our listeners, I'm the least educated person in the room on the subject. So I'm going to try to, and just tell me if I'm understanding the conversation the way that, that we're talking about it. So our conversation is about this idea that decisions are being made on a very large scale in relation to health by certain bodies, bodies like the WHO, bodies like the FAO. These are things that have been sort of developed uh, internationally at various points in time. They have different kinds of power. Um, But the issue is that these groups are not able to make decisions on behalf, truly on behalf of people, because there are things getting in the way. So for some of the things that we mentioned, for example, are the idea that you know, the WHO, much of its funding comes from private sources. And so a group like the WHO is actually beholden not to its community members and the countries that it's meant to serve, but actually to people like the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and, and their desires and their goals. Um, groups like the FAO or other international bodies also have given undue power to nation states, often nation states in the North that have an excess amount of power. And so those nation states are allowing their, their transnational corporations to exist in those spaces and and influence the conversation, use this idea of square brackets and round brackets to water down and minimize some of the impact of what would otherwise be meaningful international goals. Um, And in general, there's just this idea that people with money have many, many ways in which they can influence um, policy that would otherwise occur on a national level. And there's not really anybody able to speak on behalf of people who don't have that power. and, you know, and then we've talked about this idea since of this, you know, this difference between this human rights framework of claim holders versus duty bearers. And um, again, there's a lot of people who are being kind of shut out of the conversation in one way or another um, and allowing people with a great deal of power and influence to make all the decisions. Um, is that kind of a, 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 a more or less um, a more or less pretty quick summary of kind of what we talked about? I couldn't have done it better. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. That's that's very much what we said. 
Yeah. And so I guess, you know, so, so moving from there, I guess I wonder, so I, I guess I have a lot of questions that we've talked about so far. So one, one question, you, you can answer any of these questions. So one question is, is this idea, you know, is this human rights framework that involves this idea of a claim holder and a duty bearer? Is, is this a really archaic way of thinking about the world? Is this a sort of form of decision-making power that's based in these colonial principles of people who are smart enough to make decisions and people who are the subject of those decisions, of those decisions. Is this outdated? It needs to be replaced by some sort of more formal, or not even formal, but some deeply grassroots way of understanding collective action and collective power. How do we move towards that? And another question I have too, and this is sort of kind of moving on, I guess, but you've done a lot of writing about economics, and that was one of the pieces that um, you had written about that was interesting. this, the, the idea that like these economists are trying to pretend that they're that they're like, you know, I'll, I'll quote you here. Um, so e- economists make their work look apolit- apolitical, if not downright benevolent. To grant them unthinking adulation is a dangerous thing. Yet economists' efforts to pass themselves off as scientists continue. Um, and then you go on to talk about how some of the work that economists do is deeply non-scientific. Um, and yet much of our global health decision making kind of rests on some of these numbers and statistics that are being generated by these economists. Um, so I'll, I'll pose that sort of fork in the conversation to you. We can kind of turn backwards and talk a little bit more about human rights, or maybe we can move in a new direction and talk a little bit more about economics and the role of economists uh, in these groups that we've now described as being uh, not beholden to the people, but instead to hold into transnational companies. I'll be glad to, Raga. But first of all, let me make sure I did not understand you wrong. When you okay. say that something is outdated, did you mean to say that the human rights framework and approach is outdated or that the existing system is outdated and the human rights is, is gaining more uh, presence in, in the discussions around the world? I think that I meant, and maybe this is again just a position for me being insufficiently educated, that the human rights framework itself is is outdated and that um, there may be, is there something uh, is there something necessarily colonial about the, the, the human rights framework as we often use it of okay. a group of people who make decisions and then a group of right, people who are the object of those decisions? The con- the, what you are pointing to is something called uh, cultural re- relativism, cultural relativism, and which is very prominent in some of the con- Muslim countries, for instance, or countries in Asia that say, oh, this is something that the white man came up with uh, and it doesn't pertain to us and it is not culturally. This has been discussed ad nauseum and the situation is very clear. Human rights are not culturally dependent. They are, everybody in this planet is born with rights, period. Now, if people want to say that in our religion, the women are not supposed to do this and that, well, that is a violation of the right of those women if they don't want to do that. So the idea is that this cultural revivalism has been used for decades as a weapon against human rights. It's unacceptable. It has been discussed over and over. So this is, this is an important thing. The second thing is that colonialism and patriarchy have very common roots. This idea in many cultures where patriarchy is the the way that even families work, much much more so countries, is that men have a superior power than than 
than women. The same is true, as I said before. The rich countries in global health think that the poor countries are giving on all these terrible diseases. This is a very colonial concept. It's ridiculous. So the human rights has problems. Actually, I wrote a human rights reader today, I don't know if you are open it, in which I say we have internal problems. And we do have contradictions, no doubt. But the principle by itself is clearly still valid and not outdated. Actually, it's gaining probably more and more notoriety. Now, the economists. There are economists and economists. I mean, when you told me that a guy won the Nobel Prize because he figured out an equation to explain some goddamn economic thing, I just simply look the other way and say, how can they not find somebody to give the Nobel Prize who doesn't write formulas, but who is really interested of the economic problem of people? And there have been very few of these Nobel Prizes. The other thing that they do is they do models with all this new computer power. And they put 1,500 variables and this and arrows and up and down and this influences this and this. And at the end, they come up with a solution that the model explains the situation. Well, the model leaves out sometimes the most important variables. You cannot have a model that models life, that models misery. That that measles indignity. There's no indicator for that that you can put. So the basic social determination escapes to all these models. So these are the economists that are trying to explain in a simple way what is very complicated. And it is accusable of not considering the main and most important problems that people have. In that sense, if you go to a housewife in a shanty town in Bogota, she knows more about economy than these goddamn economists. She knows how the money that she has at the end of the week is not enough to feed her family mm. and how she can eventually wiggle it so that the stomach is at least full. So the participation of people in deciding economic policy is zero. And we listen to this guys who have PhDs and have this, this formulas. Ah, I don't want to discuss that anymore. It sickens me. I, I got a drill on that because it, it is certainly one of the topics that I'm, I, I'm most interested on um, regarding global health. And um, if I'm understanding correctly, Claudio, these very technical slash the economist approaches uh, really try to create a one size fit all type of approach, very vertical, top down kind of thing um, without having um, the, the or, or, or taking care of the different variables that are very context specific, very specific of that local perspective or local circumstances that happen in everyday life. You've written about that, actually, and I wanted to ask a little bit more um, on that, because um, it, as 
you rightly point out, there is this tension between that global approach, which in your text uh, you call globalization, and the, the local approaches, which again you're calling localization. And I wanted to know um, a, a bit more what this tension was about and how you suggest we should think about that uh, tension now that we've come to, I, I think, as a result of the pandemic, we've come to understand that that one-size-fits-all approach cannot carry on in our post-COVID world. So how, how should we think about the, the tension between the global and the local, and what are your views around that topic? There is no necessarily a tension in there. The thing is that the global is dominated by the, the you-know-whos that we have been talking for the last half hour. Right. So that the global is distorted. The local usually most of the cases has a much clearer nor understanding of reality of where or where the shoe hurts. So the idea is for the people who have the, the, the knowledge every day of where the problems are, they have to understand that the guys up there, and I say guys because there are very few gals, hmm. these decision makers are all males and white, that they have taken decisions that affect me, that are screwing me. So that's how you get them to get organized. There is a game that has been, you know, all part of you probably know David Werner. Mm -hmm. David Werner, where there is no doctor person, he used to play a game with his patients, which is called, and then what? Then what? So he had a focused discussion with people and he says, what problems do you have in health? Oh, we have this and that. Oh, yeah, okay. You, everybody agrees, yes. Why do you have that? Well, because, uh, yeah, there's a whole discussion and then they agree on four or five things why they are having this problem. And then he says, okay, and then why that? And then the people says, what do you mean? Why do you have this? So the people say, well, because the government or and invariably, if you keep playing the game, you get to the global. Mm. And the people know they do go to the global. They don't have sophisticated words, but they explain to you that they are being dominated and screwed for the generations. So playing this game, the people do understand where the shoe hurts coming from above. I mean, be it because you have usurers that are taking money from me, or you have people who are taking away my land, or you have uh, no access to health, uh, or you have to pay with an envelope under the table for the doctor to see your ailing mother, or God knows what. So this is the main dynamic between global and, and local. Start with the local, organize the people to understand the global. We have tried for decades to work with the global, we lose. Mm. Two step forward, three, two, one and three quarters step backwards. That's been the story of my life. I shave in the morning, I say, what the hell am I going, doing? I'm an old man, I have to give it to, to, to two people who are interviewing me to continue this fight. Is, is this... But I still go, I couldn't live without it. Is this part of the uh, bottom center approach that you also write about? Is is that what you mean when you when you write about that? Exactly, because it's not bottom up or uh, top down or bottom up. It's mm -hmm. bottom center. Yes, that's exactly what I talk when I talk bottom center. It takes both. 
mostly in the global area. Why? Because I live in a foreign country. I cannot get involved here in local politics. They will kick me out. Mm. That's a disadvantage for me being for the last 25, 30 years living in not in my own country. Mm. So I concentrating working on the local, on the global level, but trying to influence the local. But I am not actually here involved with communities and whatever. It's, it's impossible. I can't do that. So in so many years of um, being so outspoken about a bottom uh, center approach, do you uh, know of specific examples you've encountered or you've been told, you've read uh, that this approach has been applied? Absolutely. Take the people in Porto Alegre who did participatory budgeting. Mm. We had a communist mayor and who decided that the budget was not going to be discussed by the technocrats in the municipality, but with participation of the people. It went on for a while. Then, I, I don't know if before Bolsonaro or with Bolsonaro, it went out. Mm. We have the people of Kerala in yeah. India. Yeah. that have always had better health indicators than all the rest of the country. It's a participatory thing. People have much higher education level. Education is at a much higher uh, level of uh, importance that the government has given. And therefore, the people take many more of their decision and are participating in decision-making. And now, in Latin America, indigenous populations are fantastic examples mm. of militancy and, and, and acti activism and having the pictures so, so, so clear and introducing all this Buen Vivir idea and, and the Pachamama, which is a whole other problem that we haven't even discussed, mm. which is with the environment and the rights of nature, uh, which is all very promising stuff. Mm -hmm. And what do we do with those cases? Um, I mean, you, you, you're mentioning Brazil, you're mentioning India, you're mentioning uh, Bolivia and Ecuador, whereas the Wembivir is quite strong in both. Um, but these are cases that, to a certain extent, the development of them at a local level are fantastic. Uh, but what can we do with those? What's the next step? Well, we... Well. We can try to promote this in other places. By the way, I forgot to mention El Salvador also, who has uh, mm -hmm. very progressive health uh, policies. Mm -hmm. And uh, it rubs off slowly, slowly, but it depends on the political situation and the degree of mobilization that the masses have. And if there is historically no mass mobilization for the time being, that's where we should put our effort. Does everybody know what a shish kebab is? In Spanish, it's a pincho. Yeah, it's something you use to barbecue meat on, correct? Uh -huh. And you have morsels that are in a skewer, and you put that in the fire and you cook it. That's in English we call it the shish kebab. Mm -hmm. Now the problem that we have now, and that relates to your question, is that we have each morsel here represents one special interest group. And we have the people who are working for the environment, and we have mm. the people like us who are working in health, others are working on nutrition, the thirds are working on abortion, the others are working on, on habitat. And mm. everybody is doing quite a fantastic job in trying to advance what is the interest of their silo, because each mm. morsel is a silo. But what we don't have is that everybody in these morsels at least spends 50% of the time working on the skewer, which goes through all the morsels 
And that is the socioeconomic neoliberal system. And if we would spend as each individual morsel more time on trying to do something about the skewer, the problems that we are dealing with, there will be much less problems in health. There will be much more problem in food and nutrition because we have taken care of the problem that is underlying or is the basic or is the structural problem that causes the group in the morsel to be organized to begin with. Hmm. Very interesting. There is um, a very general critique of leftist politics around the world where it's too fragmented, um, where everything is connected by um, what we call neoliberalism. And nevertheless, it seems that each of the groups are just taking it uh, in their own their own route, their own path. Uh, so you're pointing at um, something that joins us all together, something that brings us all together. To me, that's very close to the idea or the core definition that I manage uh, of health, uh, because we tend to think um, health as healthcare, and obviously it's not the same. All of these different silos that you mentioned in your example, the environment, um, women's rights, uh, children's rights, uh, and healthcare, all of that is part of what, in general, increases population health, just in, in general. That's, that's basically some of the information that we have from our friends in statistics show that. It, you know, it, it, there's nothing separate about them. That's all part of what we should think about, the complexity of health is what I'm trying to say. So it's, it's, it's just a, a very, very interesting idea. Very political. Um, and a lot of it focus on social sciences, which, as you know, it's something that in medicine we don't learn. Um, and I wonder, what are those challenges, um, those obstacles that we have in medical education that which it, it, it apparently today is just so difficult to try to get into these conversations when we come from a medical background? It's interesting. I finished submitting a paper today as a chapter for a book in the United States that speaks exactly about that, about the introduction of human rights learning in, in the education of mm. health professionals. I can send you a copy, actually. The great. idea is that the idea is the following. Who are the doctors? Where do they come from? Are they lower class, middle class, upper class? In what percentages? When you went to medical school, Raghav, do you have any idea how many of your classmates came from blue-collar backgrounds? Um, actually, this is a thing that we studied a little bit about. And the answer is not very many. It's the, the majority of... Okay, I studied medicine in Chile, and we had 167 in my class, and we had like seven people mm. who were from lower class who were outstanding students and had made it to medical school. Mm -hmm. So what do you have at the end of the of the of the seven years of medical school? A lot of classmates of that you have had and I have had that want to go into private practice and make money. Mm -hmm. All the idea of trying to save the world by being a doctor is probably gone. And then you get a little bit older and you get a faculty appointment and then you become the dean and you are from upper class extraction. These things don't touch you. You think that the latest technology is what is going to save the health of your patients, mm. and you give priority to that to your computer, to your to your to your curriculum. Mm. 
So there is no participation of the people who are suffering. Right. Many of these consequences of the system that is provide, producing preventable ill health, preventable malnutrition, and preventable deaths, and they have nowhere in what the curriculum is. Some students are getting organized now. Mm. I mean, the, the group that you have founded is asking for some of these things. And there is an international medical students association that has been in the PHM member for a long time. Yeah. And they have been actually fighting for this as well. But they're fighting against the wall. Mm. Nobody listens up there to change this situation. Yeah, and I, I feel like for me too, um, I feel like I've had a kind of a bit of a paradigm shift mentally and internally for sure. Like for a long time, I feel like I was... You know, I was asking this question all through med school for four years. Why aren't we learning this? Why aren't we learning this? Why aren't we learning this? We should be learning this. We, we have to go on to become the leaders. We need to we need to be able to talk about global health. We need to be able to talk about poverty. We need to be able to talk about racism. We all need to understand what neoliberal capitalism is. We need to understand the Washington consensus. We need to understand these things because they impact our the health of our patients more than anything else we do. And mm. I still think that. I do still think we need to learn all those things. But I, I think it also comes back to, to what you were saying earlier, Dr. Shiftan, about how like that that's sort of self-defeating, you know, like these decisions can't come from us. Like I'm not the person to make these decisions and make these changes. I need to, I need to change and I need to be a part of the solution. But the only way that we're going to change things is if the whole entire conversation changes. And these, these conversations are not starting with me, who's coming from, as you sort of said, upper-class extraction, but are coming from the people who maybe are dealing with the brunt of are the ones who are experiencing the injustice in a meaningful way. And if we keep on phrasing it as, oh, the doctor needs to learn, the doctor needs to be, again, we're, we're, we're starting, we're, we're, we're already fucking up again. You know, we're already, we're doing it backwards again, you know? Let's take um, the U.S. example. You, you mentioned a lot of factors, but what about HMOs? What about the health corporations of America? What about how doctors feel that they are being exploited? How about right. medical doctors who think they only have seven minutes to see their patients because they have to see so many patients per hour? Right. They are being screwed by whom? Right. People who want to make a profit. Right. Look at the cost of health in America. Look at the insurance company's profit. Look at the profits of medical, of pharmaceutical houses. On and on and on and on and on. And your colleagues who may be not left-wing doctors, are fed up with this as well. Right, right, they have right. to organize. Say, I won't take it anymore. We won't take it anymore. Go on strike, damn it. Mm. That, and I, I must say that is a concern not only in the U.S., but uh, I mean, I'm sure um, in, in, in Latin America, that's extensively the case. I mean... <laughs> We are. We have been commodified as part of a market system that invaded healthcare, and that's that's the reality that we face. It, it's certainly one of the the reasons why I wanted to spend more time in academia and research, um, because I didn't want to be part of that participatory that sort of research. Limited. Please, yeah, <laughs> that's great, and that actually. It links actually to what I wanted to say, and is that um, if I'm understanding correctly, the key factor here um, is that idea of participation, popular participation, democracy in health, uh, which, by the way, it's, it, it's nothing new. It has been applied, for instance, in, in the Brazilian case, the Sanitarismo movement. A lot of it had to do, and it was grounded in this idea of, of democracy in health and participation, uh, but 
even though that was one of the, the, the very important flags that they defended, it didn't really carry through to the extent that they wanted. And I'm sure, Claudio, you may have other examples that you know of. Can you give us, maybe shed some light as to how can we, first off, learn from these cases uh, of the past that you've encountered where participation has been attempted uh, but hasn't been fully realized, learn from it, and second off, how can we move in the post-COVID world more towards that idea of participation in health and democracy in health? What, what are your thoughts? I'm involved with the People's Health Movement, and we have one of four or five different programs that we have, <clears throat> something that calls the IPHU, International People's Health University. Wonderful. And you can go to the website, www.iphu, PH Movement. And basically what we do is, over since 2005, we organize short courses, sometimes a week, sometimes two, mm. sometimes even three days, which are exclusively based on the political economy of health. And we enroll mm. mostly under, under 35s, and we enroll both health activists and human rights activists. And they have to they go through a process of selection because there's a lot of people who are interested in these courses. And then we during this period, we bombard them with this kind of ideas. And we have, over the years, trained probably more than 1,500 people in every continent. Most of these used to be multi-country. Then mm. because of the costs involved, we couldn't get the funding and we got them to be country specific. But we found it was cheaper for us. And we have now enough faculty, people who can carry this out in many countries. You don't have to have the old timers like me and others carrying these out. So basically, at the end of the course, they have a very good idea. And they discuss all these things that we have discussed today, including what to do. And that is, as you very well said, not every model fits all countries. So mm. they have to basically analyze that separately. And they are given time to discuss that in seminar work during this. And the mm. other thing that we do is we have a group called the WHO Watch. Oh, yeah. And this is a group of young people who we have some funding for who go before COVID, go to Geneva when the executive board of WHO meets and they are prepared because they have gone to the website of WHO and know exactly what is going to be discussed during the executive board and what resolutions are going to be put forth for approval by the executive board. And then we train about six or seven young, usually under 30, people who come from all over the world that we have selected and we fly them in. And they then, together with some of the older ones of us, analyze each of these resolutions and prepare a three-pager or a two-pager. And the two-pager or three-pager has the first half-page or full-page, depending on the topic, basically says a background. This resolution is coming up because blah, 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 blah. And then it says PHM position. And then we explain, being very diplomatic, we have learned that, we say, we congratulate WHO because this and this is very good, but, and then we 
insert our stuff in there. And why we don't agree and when we say what it should be, it said blah, blah, blah. Now, we give this, a hard copy of this to every member of the executive committee. Mm. So they have a look at what, and, and by now we are not alone. PHM is together with other civil society. Now, every resolution that is discussed in May in the, in the, in the Global Health Assembly, in the WH World Health Assembly, which all the ministries of the world come to, mm. are discussed at the executive board. So between January and May, we keep our, our uh, observers, our watchers, mobilized, and we look how the executive board has changed or not changed some of the resolutions according to what we said. And then we print another three-pager and give it to 193 member state representatives that come. Mm. Now, more than 50% of the ministry representatives that come to Geneva come to shop. <laughs> they have no fucking I sorry, they have no idea, <laughs> sorry, 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 of what is being discussed. They haven't done any preparatory work, not even in the airplane. Mm. Yeah. So we give them this page and they have in three pages for each resolution some idea. So they can at least open their mouth and say something intelligent. Mm. But perhaps something gets through to them. I say perhaps why? Because the people who come are people from the Ministry of Health. And you don't need to know, you, I don't need to tell you how weak the ministries of health are in the cabinet in each country. Mm. The one who calls the shot in these meetings is the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. So the guy who comes or the gal who comes to vote has to ask the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and her own minister, if the minister is not there, yeah. whether they should vote this or that. So at the end, if Israel is going to sing and the United States is against it, who do you think Israel is going to vote for? Mm, of course. Or, 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 or Nicaragua. Who's going to vote for it? Mm. Or Niger, countries where the United States has a big interest. They vote where, where their interests are. And basically, the resolutions come out with square brackets and washed right. down. So it almost, so it sounds like basically these kinds of bodies like the WHO, et cetera, are basically a way to put into paper or put into writing what what these countries already want to do in in the first place and and not really make any meaningful change right it's a way to somehow get international i wouldn't be so absolute i mean the resolutions okay. are not bad okay the can you give an example can you give an example oh. of like a time or like an example of one of you know let's say a, a who resolution that had like a, a positive or meaningful impact on something anything oh yeah Oh, I can think about polio vaccination, which, as you know, we have been almost, 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 almost getting to eradicate it, but we haven't. There are some good resolutions. We have some resolutions that are very important is to destroy the virus for smallpox, which is still kept in freezers around the world. And a lot of people mm. are saying, please destroy mm. it. Uh, there are resolutions on uh, mental health, which are definitely a very worrisome trend in terms of uh, of the frequency uh, as causes of, of ill health and, and death in the world. So there's good stuff. But cool. invariably within those that are not so technically technical, there are elements that still do not look at the social determinants of health. And the WHO had a specific 
committee on 2008 called the mm. Committee on the Social Determinants of yeah. Health, which said that the diseases are socially determined. And they don't listen to that stuff. It's forgotten. Yeah, this is this is all fascinating. I, I'm I'm actually, um, I mean, there's so much other stuff that we can uh, speak about. Uh, just out of the sake of time, and and before we finish this up, I I really wanted to ask more um, about your own personal story, how you got linked into global health, specifically uh, because you pointed out something that at this point of my career is very relevant and is the impact of the military coup in, in Chile in 1973. You very briefly mentioned on uh, the discussion that we were having before we started recording that um, you were you had just finished your pediatrics residency and you were politically involved obviously when the coup occurred you had to flee and you moved to the us and i just wanted to ask about that specific uh time in your life how how did the coup and and that anti-communist repression uh how did that impact how what happened in your life and how did that frame the way that first of you linked into global health and how you think about global health is it's what i'm very interested on mm. i went to a private school a swiss school i mentioned that to you before we started this interview middle upper middle class school non-political i had no idea i went to medical school and became politicized in the first three or four years and became a member of the student, uh, not the president, but a member of the student government. Uh, we organized a long strike to change some of the ways in, in, in the curriculum and in the etc. This is at the University of Chile? Yeah, mm -hmm. in the government university. Then I went, uh, for those of you who are listening, by the time I graduated from medical school, I had paid $400 in tuition altogether in seven years. Mm. Oh God. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I know you're paying one more. Anyway, <laughs> the idea is that uh, uh, I went to pediatrics. I was thinking that I was saving the world as a doctor and I was saving children. And I went to the wards. And by that time, Chile had many chanty towns in Santiago and a lot of malnutrition and diarrhea. Diarrhea, malnutrition, dehydration. The vast majority of the inpatients that came in were diarrhea, malnutrition, dehydration. Mm. So I got a patient, I worked with little Juanito, spent nights and days to try to get him to smile for the first time, refeed him, rehydrate him. Mm -hmm. He was beginning to have the first smile. I was happy. My boss came at round time. He pat me on the shoulder. He says, well done, doctor. Out with Juanito. I have three kids waiting for that same bread. Mm -hmm. So I said, okay, I will and talk to the mother and says, mother, look, this is what you have to do for this not to happen again. Did you understand? Yes. Well, repeat it. Okay. She repeated it with mistakes. I corrected her. At least I knew she went home knowing what she had to do. Mm. I continued working. Three months later, I'm on the rounds in another ward and I see a familiar face. I says, shit, I know this kid. I went to the card chart. At this time, we didn't have computers. I see my handwriting. I says, this is Juanito. Juanito mm. is back. What the hell is it? Let me see diagnosis. Diarrhea, dehydration, malnutrition. It happens two times as a coincidence. It happens 15. Yeah. And you say, what, 
the hell am I doing here? Who am I cheating? I am in the hospital. Am I going to solve the problem in the hospital? So I decided to go and work in the shanty towns in my free time. And did nutrition and health education there. Mm. Okay. Then I began to think perhaps public health is important. My classmate says, are you crazy? Are you going to public health? You're going to be pushing papers all day. <laughs> and then you begin working with them and you say, this is what you have to do, the clean water and this for the netting for the, mos- for the flies and whatever. And I says, yes, doctor, I understand, but I have no money. Mm. So then you says, what the hell am I doing? I'm teaching, I'm doing health education, nutrition education, hell does it help. So it doesn't work. So then I became a member of a political party. Mm. And that explains why I'm talking to you here from Saigon in Vietnam. <laughs> I had to leave when the coup came. Mm. My life was in jail. Classmates of mine were killed. Can, can I ask what political party that this was? The Socialist Party. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The Allende's party. Yeah, yeah. So, I'm, so basically, I'm, yes. Basically, you have to, and f- from there to global health is basically because I had the luck when I went to the states to be at Meharry in this international program, and I was because I fluent in French, and USAID didn't have any many French speaking consultants. I spent every single summer in West Africa in different countries doing consulting work in francophone countries. So then I began seeing that what I what I was seeing in Chile is the same that I'm seeing in 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 everywhere else. That's the skewer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the skewer of the shish kebab. What's interesting to me is what you're sort of describing about how you you are working on an international scale with all these different people. I I'm I don't even know my question, but I'm I'm how how what does that look like? Like what does it look like to be working, thinking, organizing between countries when you're not even local in some of these countries? How is that? How does that happen? How, how does communication happen? What does the day to day work look like for somebody for people who are thinking about uh, these issues on an on an international level? And how do you do it in a way where you're connected with the people who you're trying to serve and not not fall you know not existing in silos and not far away? How, how do you do this work? What does it look like? And how do you do it well um well you're you're absolutely right when you are doing this mercenary work usually you fly in usually for two or three weeks as much you have probably read 400 pages before you get there to have an idea of what the whole assignment is all about but it's ridiculous you're trying to become an expert of the problem of health or whatever maternal childhood or whatever it was in that country uh, in a visit of three weeks but mm. you get to talk to the colleagues and you learn a lot from them you get to go to the field and you learn a lot mm. from what the mothers and the local leaders have to tell and it begins sinking in into you that some things are wrong the way decisions are made or decisions are not made Indeed. So understand that this claim holder duty bearers is a chain. Let's take mm-hmm. a child. The first duty bearer to the child is the mother. She has a duty to raise him, protect him, whatever. But at the same time of her being a duty bearer, she is a claim holder to, let's say, the district health doctor who takes decisions on some of the maternal child health health things. So he's a duty bearer to the mother. But the doctor is a claim holder to what he can get from the minister. 
minister or ministry who is the duty bearer for him. He doesn't have free hand to do whatever he wants. So there is this chain of duty bearers, and at the end it's the state who, because they have ratified these covenants, is responsible for whatever. But basically, to answer your question is, it's the interaction with these people who begin, you begin seeing they see the problem the same way you do. So you think mm. there is a common denominator here. Mm. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, we could spend another hour or two speaking about so many other, yeah, so many other topics. Like you mentioned, for instance, uh, social determination, which, by the way, it's not the same as social determinants of health. And understanding understanding that difference is also something very, very interesting that I hope that in, in, in some other future conversation, we're able to break down and understand a lot better. Um, I believe for now, for this episode, um, we can uh, wrap it up and just all the content that you gave us, Claudio. Thank you so much. Uh, such wise words. Um, so much to think about, so many topics that we also need to understand better, to research more, to connect with reality in a participatory way. Um, so thank you so much for all that information. Thank you so much for joining us. Any any final okay. words, Dr. Shiftan? No, I mean, if somebody is interested in, in reading some of this stuff, I have a website, www.claudioshuftan.com. And uh, you will be able to find uh, a lot of my writings there. Thank you so much again. This is Social Medicine On Air, co-hosted and produced by our team. Jonas Adelis, Sebastian Fonseca, Raghav Goyal, Brendan Johnson, Leila Sabah, and Poetry Thomas. Intro, outro, and incidental music credits go to Smith Master. Huge thanks to Dr. Marwa Salah for feedback and advice, and to Clara Brand for designing our logo. If you haven't already, please, please leave us a review and give us some stars wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us to keep going. And if you would like to share your story on the podcast or have any thoughts, questions, feedback at all, please reach out to us by email at socialmedicineonair.com.